0: Coming up today on Draft Utopia, Chris Ransom breaks down CeeDee Lamb's comments about wanting to be a Hall of Famer, the top 20 picks in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League draft, the top 80 players in Wednesday's MLB draft. Chris is going to reveal all 80 players on his big board with round one prospects tomorrow on Tuesday and round two prospects on Wednesday leading up to that Major League Baseball draft. I'll also break down two quarterbacks on the prospect profile series, both in the SEC East Division, Kyle Trask of Florida and Jamie Newman of Georgia. The final segment for today's show will be State of the Franchise, the team, the Jacksonville Jaguars. So on that note, here's your host, Chris Ransom, well, it's me, and I didn't need that unnecessary long introduction. I just wanted a format of topics to preview for today's show, and I'm going to start with the CeeDee Lamb comments about him being a Hall of Fame receiver, and CeeDee's just got to earn his stars. I'm not going to say earn his stripes, he's just got to earn his stars. He's a member of the Cowboys, and their logo is a star. He's already wearing the number 88, which was previously worn by Michael Irvin and Des Bryant. So, he's on a team with two receivers that reached 1,000 yards. Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup both had over 1,000 yards last year. CeeDee Lamb just needs to worry about earning a starting receiver spot. He may end up starting in the slot and having to work his way up the depth chart, but... Just focus on getting playing time and having an impact and earning your time on the field because that's great that you want to be a Hall of Famer. We're proud that you want to put the work in, but show people you want to be there. Show that with your actions. And CeeDee Lamb was my number two receiver in the draft line, Jerry Judy. So... I'm not going to fault C.D. for saying he wants to be a Hall of Famer. I like that. But this team has two receivers that got 1,000 yards. And C.D. Lamb had back-to-back seasons of 1,000 yards at Oklahoma. Even with three different quarterbacks, the guy still played at a high level. When they went from Baker Mayfield to Kyler Murray to Jalen Hurts, Lamb still played at a high level. But the thing is, he's got to come into Dallas and earn the starting job right out of the gate. He's the best player on the board at 17, and I don't fault the Cowboys for taking him rather than addressing a need. But CeeDee Lamb's going to have to come in and earn that job, either the number one or the number two receiver job, because if he's a slot receiver right out of the gate, then he's going to have to work his tail off until... He ends up being one of the top two receivers on the roster, and then he's going to have to assert himself as the leader of the team. And Lamb's a very good receiver. Like, if something happened to Amari Cooper and he got injured for some reason, I think Lamb's the one guy who could step in and have an instant impact with the team. There'd be absolutely no drop-off in play. But now you have Lamb playing with Gollop and... Cooper, that only helps if you're the Dallas Cowboys. So on that note, I'm going to transition into the next news story. Um, The Jets did sign Joe Flacco a few weeks ago. I know it's not news, but the New York Jets brought him in as a backup to Sam Darnold. And I think the reason they did this is simple. James Morgan, the quarterback they draft in the fourth round, They don't think he's good enough to step in as the starter if Darnold gets injured. And they want to develop him. They want to be patient with James Morgan. And that's cool. I get that. So you bring in a former starter like Joe Flacco and you use him as a backup. Primarily a backup to Darnold. It's a good move. It's a good short-term move for the Jets. And Darnold's a guy that has experience as a starter. He's got a high upside. Doesn't necessarily have the best supporting cast, but you bring in a veteran who won Super Bowl 47, Joe Flacco, into mentor him, that's only gonna help Darnold get better. So I like the move there to get Flacco. And I know Flacco only played well in that playoff run just to get a big contract. I get that. But at the end of the day, Flacco's got experience. And he was the starter for the Denver Broncos to begin last year, but he couldn't maintain that starting job. second year in a row he lost the starting job, so Flacco's now a backup, a journeyman at this point, so it'll definitely be interesting to see what happens there with that situation. Because now you have C.D. Lamb and Amari Cooper under contract for the next five years, as Brian Luis and I stated on Friday. NHL news. Teams are entering Phase 2. Phase 3 could begin as early as July 10th. It will begin no sooner than July 10th. I think the NHL just wants to see how each phase goes before they set a date for when the playoffs are going to resume. Phase 1, Phase 2... Phase four will obviously be the return of NHL. And the training camps take three weeks. September 10th, September 11th is when training camp for the 2019-2020 NHL season began. NHL regular season began on October 2nd, 2019. So, that means that it's going to take at least three weeks from Phase three to phase four, the training camp. The training camp is going to be at least three weeks before, a minimum of three weeks before we're even talking about the games resuming. So the round of 24, the earliest it will start is July 31st, same day the NBA resumes. We could be looking at NHL playoffs and NFL preseason on the same exact day. The NFL preseason begins August 6th it's possible we could be looking at preseason and NHL playoffs in the same day. That our audience could be looking at that, sports fans around the world could be looking at the preseason debut in Canton and the NHL playoffs being on the exact day. And with the NBA, we know that there's going to be some games starting July 31st. Each t- each of the twenty two teams that's still in contention is gonna have eight regular season games left. And then they're gonna do seating. I'm not sure how the seating for the NBA is gonna work. There will be seating though. And I think that's gonna help clear some things up. On that note, I am going to transition into the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League draft. This was a good draft for three teams. Three teams won this draft in a big way. The Gatineau Olympics, the Halifax Mooseheads, and the Drummondville Voltigars. Those were the three big winners of this draft. Because I felt like Tristan Lunot and Antonin Veralt were the top two players in the draft. And the fact that the Olympics got both of those players. They got Olivier Boutin last year who checked off all the boxes. And now you get another defender that checks off all the boxes. And that's good to have multiple defenders that check off all the boxes. That can do everything at a very high level. Tristan Leno's is definitely a player that was a team captain on his junior team prior to being drafted by, or his midget Bantam team prior to being drafted by the Olympics, so you know you're getting a very good player, potential leader down the road. Antonin Veralt's another talented player, 2022 draft eligible, is going to have a lot of first-round prospects, potentially, multiple first-round prospects in 2022, And while Antonin Veralt's 5'6", 148, he is fast, he's explosive, 48 assists, 48 points and 31 assists in 39 games, so 48 points in 39 games, he can make plays happen, and he's a great playmaker with the puck. Leighton Carruthers is a very good defender, like he's very physical too, and he can play both ends, offensively and defensively. He may have been the 11th best player on... Most scouting board outlets, like the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, they have a scouting service, and Carruthers was ranked 11th on the draft board of that said scouting service. But you watch the highlights, and Carruthers does everything well. He checks like a defender, he s- hits like a defender. He plays like an offensive center when he has the puck, and he's very aggressive when he does not have the puck. And that is a good trait. And you drafted Joshua Roy number one overall, so Carruthers can learn behind Roy and develop into a very good player down the road, potentially. Samuel Savoy went fourth overall. He was the top-ranked center in this draft, so Gatineau was able to come away with the top center, left top winger, and top defender in this draft after getting a good center and defender in last year's draft. And Gatineau still had one more pick, Evan Noss went sixth overall a year ago and didn't sign with a Quebec Major Junior Hockey League team, so I was a little baffled that he got drafted at number five. Vincent Filion was the top goalie in this draft, and 207 goals against average, 928 save percentage, 14 and eight and 22 starts, 2.40 GAA, 932 save percentage in three playoff games, and it's a guy who may end up being a first round pick. Obviously, the Valdor Fouriers struggled on tape when I watched Ramouski dominate Valdor. So, to get a goalie like this, I understand the reasoning behind the pick. They also got Jacob Pelletier, the uh, Calgary Flames 2019 first-round pick. And Pierre-Oliver Roy, It went to the Victoriaville Tigres. And Pierre-Oliver Roy... Very good two way defender despite being 5'11, 150, 30 assists, 32 points, and a plus 21 plus minus ratio. And he can get teammates involved. You want to see him continue to develop his shot, but there's a lot to like. You can get bigger, add more muscle. Noah Warren is another player to watch 6'4, 201. He's a He's got the body of a defensive defender, but his production isn't there yet. And Gatineau's got two defenders, so they can develop Noah Warren at, at a slower rate. He can be a guy that they develop into a very good player over time. So I'm not worried about that if I'm Gatineau, because Gatineau was able to get two defenders in this draft. They got the top defender, top winger, top center, and they had four picks in the top eight because Baldor traded their pick to Montcon for Jacob Pelletier. Then Montcon moved the pick to Gatineau, so Gatno went from 13 to 8, and Montcon moved down from 8 to 13. Michael Mastro-Domenico was the third-best player on the board. The Shaw-Winnigan-Cataractes got the number three player at number nine. Landville boy, is Brond Armada took Jonathan Fauchon at 10. Fauchon's a solid player, but he was the fourth best center left in the draft. It, but his consistent play, 34 points in 42 games really does speak for itself and he had 11 plus 11 plus minus ratio and 10 points in 5 playoff games, very good performer in the playoffs. The Drummondville Voltigers moved up to number 11. They took Luke Woodworth, the number 7 player on most big boards. And then they got Maverick Lamoro, a defensive defender, 6'4", 170, that was ranked the 5th best overall player on the board, models his game after Seth Jones. So Drummondville getting two top 10 talents at picks 11 and 12, they're definitely a winner of this draft. Yeom Lashing was a player that was 19th on his most scouting outlet big boards. He goes 13th, 36 points in 28 games. Definitely a reach, but his production does say, speak a lot. 24 goals, 12 assists, 36 points in 28 games. It'll be interesting to see what he can do with a bigger l- workload with the Montcon Wild- Moncton Wildcats. Halifax Mooseheads got Marcus Vidisek. At 14, 510, 146, 13th best player on the board and third best center on the board. Halifax is just one of those teams that drafts good players on a consistent basis. They got Nate they gave up three first round picks for Nate McKinnon. Nate McKinnon would have been a member of the Bay Camo Drake Carr if Halifax doesn't send three first round picks. And Halifax beats the Bay Como Drake Car in the twenty thirteen Quebec Major Junior Hockey League finals before winning the Memorial Cup. So, I think they defeated the Portland Winterhawks, the team that beat them in the first game of the Memorial Cup, because that team had Seth Jones. I remember that draft quite vividly. But Marcus Vissadek was the 13th best player on the board and the third best center, and Vissadek's just a good player. 33 points in 39 games, 15 goals, 18 assists, a plus-six, plus-minus ratio, so he can defend effectively. Even though he still needs to grow and develop and get better as a defender, he's good enough. His awareness is good enough to get him picked in the first round. So it'll be interesting to see what this Vidisek does with Halifax. Nathan Drapeau and Lane Hinckley were both reaches. Drapeau was considered the 30th best player. He goes 15th overall, but he's an offensive defender. He needs to improve. And then Lane Hinckley was a third round prospect, and he went in the first round. So, both of those picks. Cape Breton got a goalie. Nicholas Ruccia. And Ruccia, 254 GAA, 903 save percentage, and 22 starts. A little undersized at 511, 148. But Cape Breton took Marc Andre Fleury and turned him into the number one pick in the draft. So, don't sleep on Ruccia. If he can earn a starting job with the Screaming Eagles right out of the gate, get some playing time, he can really develop and potentially do something. Halifax at 18, Jordan Dumais, 5'9", 161. He was the top right winger in the entire draft despite being a second-round prospect. This is an A grade instead of an A-plus grade for me because this guy had 47 goals, 78 assists, and 125 points in 52 games, meaning he was averaging at least two points per game. And his impact with Select's Hockey Academy really speaks for itself. And now he goes to a Halifax team that has a proven track record for developing NHL prospects. And we're going back to Drummondville here. They got a third first-round pick, and they got Nathan Morin. 40 points in 41 games. He's a line-two or line-three center at best in terms of production, but he provides solid depth and stability, considering he was a first-round prospect who fell further than he should have. So Drummondville got fantastic value there. And then finally... The last player on my big board is Dylan Gill from the Ryune Naranda Huskies. I gave that an F grade, but yeah, I talked about these guys in depth on Friday's show, on talk shoes. So if you want to go back and do a little bit more research on these guys, go to our Quebec Major Junior Hockey League live draft results show from Friday. And only reason I broke down all those players once again after breaking those players down on Fridays, because our talk shoe feed got interrupted and the show cut off earlier than I wanted it to. So I wanted to make sure I had that covered. And yeah, I mean that episode got 140 downloads on talk shoe, so I really appreciate that. Um, now that that's out of the way, I am going to break down my top 80 big board for the MLB draft. Spencer Torkelson and Austin Martin headline this draft at first base and third base. Asa Lassi's number three out of Texas A&M. Nick Gonzalez, number four. Zach Veen, number five. Right fielder, Spruce Creek High School, Everson Hancock at six. Heston Krajerstad, the Arkansas right fielder, at seven. Max Meyer, the Minnesota Golden Gophers ace, who struck out last year's number one pick, Adley Rushmans, at eight on our board, has the best slider of any pitcher in this draft. Reed Detmers out of Louisville has the best curveball of any pitcher in this draft. Ocelassie is the best fastball, though. And Emerson Hancock, some scouts just like his command and pitching accuracy more than Ocelassie. So each of these pitchers projected to go in the top ten bring something to the table that makes them stand out. Robert Hassel from Independence High School in Tennessee, number 10 player on the board. Garrett Mitchell, UCLA center fielder, comes in at 11. Austin Hendrick at 12. Tyler Soders, draw at 13. Turlock High School, California. Garrett Crochet moved up from four, 15 to 14 on our big board for the draft. Utopia big board. Nick Bitsko. I still think Mick Abel and Jared Kelly are both better than Bitsko. I'm hearing the Phillies love Bitsko, and he's projected to go number one overall in 2021 over Kumar Rocker. So if he's that good, you can't fault a team for wanting to take him early because he chose to graduate a year early so he could play in the big league sooner. Patrick Bailey, North Carolina State pit catcher, 18. Ed Howard, Mount Carmel, high school, shortstop, 19, and 20 through 37, Carmen Blodzinski, 20 through 37 in my mock draft that I went over on Wednesday is exactly the same. Cole Wilcox, Georgia pitcher, at 21, Jordan Walker, third baseman, Decatur High School, 22, Justin Foscu, 23, Bryce Jarvis, the Duke Blue Devils pitcher, 24, Pete Crow, Armstrong, Harvard, Westlake, High school center fielder, 25. Dylan Dingler, Ohio State catcher, comes in at 26. Number 27, Jordan Westberg, shortstop Mississippi State. Tanner Burns, I've mocked him to the Yankees. I know my friend Brandon Lane, who I've done a few baseball podcasts with on Shoe, is a huge Tanner Burns fan. I remember the 2018 MLB draft when Brandon and I were breaking that down. He mentioned Tanner Burns, Tanner Burns on our podcast and I like Tanner Burns in the 2017 MLB draft when he was still in high school before he enrolled in Auburn. So Tanner Burns is a player that's been on my radar. Nick Lofton, the shortstop out of Baylor, comes in at 29. JT Jin at 30. Cole Henry, 31. LSU pitcher, Mississippi State pitcher. JT Gin went 30th out of high school, but chose not to sign with the Dodgers. Austin Wells, the Arizona catcher, 32. Casey Martin, 33. Drew Romo, 34. Blaise Jordan, first base, DeSoto Central High School of Mississippi 35. Drew Romo goes to the Woodlands High School. That's where Jamison Tayon went. Steve Lonsway led the NCAA in strikeouts despite being the Saturday starter instead of the Friday night starter. I have him at 36. And then Logan Allen, Florida International Friday night starter, wraps up my first round prospect board. And the rest of these guys, I'm going to mention them now. They're guys that I have in the second round of my mock draft or guys that I have undrafted. But I decided to set up the big board first before typing round two of my mock draft with the write-ups. Kevin Parada, catcher Loyola, Loyola High School. Dax Fulton, Mustang High School, Oklahoma, 39. Number 40 is Aaron Sabato, first baseman, North Carolina. 41, Cade Cavalli, pitcher, Oklahoma. Bobby Miller, pitcher, Louisville, 42. Two Miami Hurricane pitchers, Chris McMahon and Slade Sisoni, 43 and 44. On my big board, Carson Montgomery, Windermere High School in Florida, comes in at 45. Daniel Cabrera, the LSU left fielder, 46. Number 47, Jeff Criswell, the Friday night starter for the Michigan Wolverines. Number 48, C.J. Van Eck, Florida State Friday night starter. Alika Williams, the Arizona State shortstop, comes in at 49. Clayton Beater, the Texas Tech pitcher that can be a very good starter or reliever, comes in at 50. Became the Friday Night Starter this year, but he only saw limited action before the coronavirus. Cade Horton from Norman High School in Oklahoma comes in at 51. Jake Eager, Vanderbilt's Friday Night Starter, 52. Burl Carraway, the Dallas Baptist pitcher, may have the fastest track, the big leagues. Very good relief pitcher, 53. Number 54, Carson Tucker, shortstop, Mountain Point High School in Arizona, 55 Tanner Witt Bucks County High School in Texas. I don't, that's not right. Hold on. I gotta fix that. Tanner Witt does not go to Bucks County. I'm going to fix that right now. I see an error in the code I've typed. Goes to Epis. Episcopal. Episcopal, yeah. Episcopal is in Texas, but he's number 55 on our big board. Tanner Witt from Episcopal. Jared Jones, La Mirada High School in California. Mason Wynn, Kingwood High School pitcher. 57, number 58, Alex Santos, Mount St. Michael Academy in New York. 59, Justin Lang from Milano High School in Texas. Isaiah Green, the center fielder for Corona High School. Where's number 24? If I get a joke about... No joke, I'm not... We're moving on at 61. No Corona stuff. Drew Bowser, Harvard Westlake High School, California. Um, Drew Bowser is a teammate of... Pete Crow Armstrong at Harvard Westlake. Both batters are going to be picked in the top 80. I wouldn't be surprised if both batters went in the first round. They're both extremely talented players. 62, Nolan McLean, third baseman, Garner High School, North Carolina. Ryan Hagno, pitcher, Varagat High School, Tennessee. 63. Tommy Mace, the Florida Gators ace pitcher, comes in at 64. Kyle Harrison, the center fielder for De La Salle High School of California, 65. Kyle Nicholas, the ball state pitcher at 66. Nick Swiney or Swinney, North Carolina State 8 this is pitcher at 57. Jared Schuster, Wake Forest, pitcher comes in at 68, 69. Daniel Suzak, catcher Jesuit High School in California. There's a Jesuit High School in Oregon and a Jesuit High School in California the Jesuit Marauders of the California team. Tyler Gentry, right fielder, Alabama, comes in at 70. Final 10 players in this list, Cam Brown, pitcher, Flower Mound High School in Texas, 72. Corey Collins, catcher, North Gwinnett High School, Georgia. And then the final eight players are all college players, Hudson Haskin, center fielder, Tulane, Gage Workman, third baseman, Arizona State. Zach Deloach, center fielder, Texas A&M. Zach McCambley, pitcher, Coastal Carolina. Sam Weatherly, pitcher, Clemson. Ian Bedell, pitcher, Missouri at 78. Number 79, Mason Erla, pitcher, Michigan State. And number 80, the final player on my big board for the MLB draft, Freddie Zamora, shortstop, Miami, Florida. So... Now, I'm down to the last two topics of this show. The quarterback prospect profile series, where I'm going to break down both SEC East quarterbacks, Kyle Trask and Jamie Newman in depth. And then, I'm going to wrap up this show with a state of the franchise edition for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now, I already broke down two of these quarterbacks on top. I broke down the top four quarterbacks each, Lawrence, Fields, Brock Purdy, and Trey Lance in depth on last week's episodes. I had a roundtable episode with Brian Luis on Friday, which is definitely a must listen. So go to Spotify or Anchor. If you're not on Anchor, you can go to Spotify and listen to those episodes. Kyle Trask out of Florida and Jamie Newman out of Georgia. I have an 84 grade on both quarterbacks. I think both guys are high-end backups. But there's some people that like Newman as a starter, and both of those quarterbacks are being looked at as candidates for Mobile. But Trask enters his second season as the starting quarterback, and he can make up to all six progressions, play in any type of offensive scheme. First Florida quarterback that I ever saw take snaps under center. And he can make one step, three step, five step, seven step throws. He picked apart all of LSU's defensive backs in last year's contest, except for one. Fulton, Delpit, and Stingley all gave up at least one big play to Florida's offense. Jacoby Stevens, a 2021 safety on LSU, was the only player that didn't give up a big play to Trask. Weaknesses. Kyle Trask has a very good football IQ, but the downside is he's inconsistent in terms of arm strength and accuracy on film. He overthrows balls under through passes in multiple games on tape against LSU, Florida State, and Virginia. He has trouble squeezing the ball to tight windows on a consistent basis. There are seven games of Trask on YouTube, and these issues pop up in the three games I watch against Florida State, LSU, and Virginia. And that's not going away. I have a third-round grade on Trask at the moment. He's going to play in the Senior Bowl, and he can move into the second round with a strong weekend mobile. But he's going to need a strong in mobile and a good combine to move into the first round like Jordan Love. And there's no guarantee he moves up that far. He's going to have to have a strong 2020 season as well. I think he's a day two pick at this point, but we'll see what Trask does on tape this year. Because that's really going to reveal a lot. He had two season-ending injuries in 2017 and 2018, which is... Why Kyle Trask comes with some durability concerns. Jamie Newman, the Georgia Bulldogs quarterback, he was the starting quarterback on Wake Forest last year. He transferred to Georgia. And he has the best throwing power, arm strength, velocity of any quarterback in this draft. And he can throw it in the tight windows. He has better arm talent than last year's starting quarterback at Georgia, Jake Fromm. His accuracy on deep balls needs to improve but he's got the short and medium accuracy down he can make good one step and three step throws now if he can just develop that deep ball accuracy he could be very good he also needs to improve his five step and seven step drops when I watch Newman throw I see him mostly making one step and three step throws and their completions so you like the fact that he can complete a pass just by taking one step or three steps as a coach you like that at the same time, you want to see him use his feet more. And he can scramble out of the pocket, pick up a gain. And he needs to fix his ability to read progressions too because a lot of times he'll look for a um, Wake force top receiver. He'll take off and run. I have a third-round grade on Newman, but most mock drafts have a first, second-round grade. And there's debate over him because Josiah Michael... Had a first-round grade on him late first, mocked him the Patriots. Thomas Coburn, another guy who I told about Newman, does not think Newman's going to be a good quarterback. And I honestly, I didn't want to agree with Thomas at first, but I went back and watched the tape, and I, I kind of agree with him. Joey has him going in the first round at this point. Joey does like him, and if you want Joey's take on Jamie Newman, go to Talk TalkShoe and listen to our quarterbacks episode Talkshoe.com, type in Draft Utopia. You'll get Saturday's episode with the quarterback rankings. But there really aren't any threats. And I thought Jake Fromm was so fundamentally sound coming out of Georgia. And there was a lot to like. I think Jamie Newman reminds me of Byron Leftwich coming out of Marshall. But. So I might sound a little harsh, but you know, Byron left, which was a very good backup with the Steelers after his career with the Jaguars didn't go as planned. And now he's the offensive coordinator of the Buccaneers behind Bruce Arians After Arians hired him as a quarterback's coach. And tomorrow I'm going to start going into NHL and NBA prospects. And I only did two quarterbacks today because I had both of those quarterbacks tied for the same grade. So, NHL, NBA, Tuesday and Wednesday. And then I can go to either NHL or NBA on Thursday and Friday. So, get those breakdowns of the top two players in the NHL draft and those breakdowns of the top two players in the NBA draft on this podcast and can break those players down. I still want to talk about the NFL. But the MLB drafts on Wednesday, and I've already covered pretty much everybody in the 2020 MLB draft. I don't need to cover the 2021 MLB draft until the showcase games and all this other stuff comes out. And MLS draft, I don't need to cover that until we get a schedule for the 2020 college soccer season. So at this point, I'm going to stick to NFL prospects for 2021, hockey, and basketball prospects. I might bring MLS players into the fold when the fall arrives, once we get the 2020 college soccer schedules. And I can bring the college baseball players back in 2021. Once we get a better idea of the MLB standings, assuming we have a baseball season, I'll just wait on that because there's a lot of baseball going on. But now it's time for the final segment of today's show the state of the franchise. Now, the Jacksonville Jaguars are in a very interesting situation. They might start Will Richardson, who was a right tackle at North Carolina State, over left tackle Cam Robinson because he's progressed and gotten better each year, and Cam Robinson really hasn't asserted himself. And oddsmakers continue to project Clemson's Trevor Lawrence as the number one pick. Robinson, if Cam Robinson's not starting all 16 games at left tackle, I'm picking against the Jaguars every game they play start Will Richardson at left tackle. I know that seems harsh, that seems unfair, but Will Richardson never played left tackle at North Carolina State in college. He was a right tackle. And now you're just plugging him into left tackle, hoping it gets you a result. And the Jaguars also own the Rams first round pick. So if the Rams do poorly this season, the Jaguars do own that first round pick as well. So the Jaguars have two first round picks. They can get a left tackle. They could get a quarterback like Lawrence or Fields at 1 or 2, and then they can get their left tackle. Or they could take Panay Sewell at 1. If they really like Panay Sewell over both quarterbacks. And then they could take uh, Trey Lance or Brock Purdy or Newman at 10. But I think they'd take the quarterback and then the left tackle. So the Jaguars have Gardner Minshew as their quarterback. Their backup quarterback is Jake Luton. I love Jake Luton coming out of Oregon State. So what do the Jaguars have to do here with State of the Franchise? They're going to have two left tackles competing. Jake Luton has not signed his rookie contract. That's, that's an issue because if Luton has not signed his rookie contract, that means Gardner Minshew is running unopposed. The other quarterbacks on the roster besides Gardner Minshew are Mike Glennon and Josh Dobbs. Both have one-year deals. Luton has not signed his rookie deal, so that's going to be—we know Gardner is going to start Week 1, but the quarterback competition between Jake Luton, Joshua Dobbs, and Mike Glennon during Jaguars training camp, that's going to be interesting because if Luton cannot at least— because I think Luton has more upside than both Glennon or Dobbs. I felt like Glennon and Dobbs were both NFL backups. So if Luton can come in, can he beat out both of those guys for the backup job right away? Because Luton still has not signed his rookie deal. And if Gardner Minshew does awful, the Jaguars are going to be taking a quarterback at one. Leonard Fournette did not get a fourth-year option, fifth-year option on his rookie deal. So he's going to be in a contract year because he didn't get that fifth-year option on his rookie deal. And they got Chris Thompson, Raquel Armstead. They got a bunch of no-name running backs on this roster. So running back could be a need for Jacksonville next year too. If Leonard Fournette goes, I won't be surprised if they address that position. Connor Slomka is under contract until 2023. The Jaguars have not signed Colin Johnson or LaVisca Chennault. The numbers on their rookie contracts does not show up. Chris Conley is in a contract year. DD Westbrook is in a contract year. And honestly, I'd re-sign Westbrook. I'd entertain the idea of re-signing him. You don't need to re-sign him though because you've got a lot of depth at receiver. You've got Chark for two more years. You're gonna have Colin Johnson and LaVisca Chenault. You're reloading at receiver. You're picking the right time to reload at receiver. You've got Conley for one year. So if any of these receivers can step up, that's awesome, and if not, the Jaguars are going to have to rely on Chenault, because I think Chenault was one of their better picks, and I think he can be the number one receiver that this team can depend on, but they have a lot of receivers. They don't have a true number one, and the longer Colin Johnson and LaVisca Chenault don't sign their rookie deals, the harder this is, so... I really do like the picks they made at receiver with Johnson and Chenault Luton, but they haven't signed those guys yet. Tyler Eifert's got two years on his contract with a Is this a club option or a player option for 2021? I'm looking it up right now. So the Jaguars have $20 million to spend for this year. And... I honestly don't know if it's a player option or a club option. I'm I'm using spot track salary cap thing. Club option, so the club has the right to decline Eifert's contract for next season if he does terrible or gets injured again. Andrew Norwell's under contract till 2023. As is Linder, can. Split time with Will Richardson at right guard. His deal runs through 2022, so those that interior offensive line looks good for now. Jawan Taylor started all 16 games. He was the first right tackle since 1998 to start all 16 games for the Jaguars. So Jawan Taylor's the starting right tackle. Will Richardson is moving from right tackle over to left tackle, and he's going to push Cam Robinson for that left tackle job. And honestly, I Will Richardson played right tackle at North Carolina State, played right guard, and did well there. He's better on the right side of the offensive line, so left tackle could be an issue. Receiver could be an issue if um, they lose Westbrook. I don't think receivers is as big of a need as quarterback, left tackle, or even running back. But right now, the guys you drafted have not signed their rookie deals. And that's problematic when you consider that Conley... Westbrook and Shark are your starters short-term. And the longer Johnson and Chenault wait to sign their rookie deals, the less of a chance they play right out of the gate. And the more likely we probably see Conley. We probably see those guys, Johnson and Chenault, in 2021, assuming they get a quarterback like Lawrence in the draft. And there's a lot to like. Yannick Naguko, he wants out. But they franchise tagged him for $17.7 million, so he has to play this year. Otherwise, he will not get—nobody will pick him up because the Jaguars are not trading him. They want to start him next to Josh Allen, their first-round pick out of Kentucky in 2019. Rodney Gunter and Taven Bryant are both under contract until 2023, so defensive tackle is going to be a strong point. Dontavius Russell is the backup until 2023— Looking at the linebacker situation, Kalevon Chasen has not signed his rookie deal. Joe Schobert's under contract till 2025. Miles Jack, 2024. And Kalevon Chasen's projected to be the starting left outside linebacker, but he hasn't signed his rookie deal. Yep, and nobody has really... Jaguars have drafted rookies, but... There is not an exact salary figure under any of their rookie players, which is amazing because Devon Hamilton, used drafted as a rookie, Ben Barch. And the Jaguars did have a good draft. After the first round, I thought the Jaguars really picked up the slack and did well on day two and day three. But they have not signed any of their rookies, not even the first round picks. So the Jaguars haven't even signed any of their rookies. And the fact that it's June, the fact that the NFL season is 92 days away, and they haven't signed any of their rookies, that concerns the fuck out of me. Like, you, the we, we, regular season starts in 92 days, and I know there's only the Thursday night game on September 10th, but still, 95 days. Your home opener against the Colts is in 95 days, and you haven't even signed any of these rookies. Now, to be fair, the coronavirus has delayed everything. So in Jacksonville's defense, it's it's understandable why they haven't signed these guys. But week, your week one home opener against the Colts is in 95 days. And you got to sign these guys before training camp starts. I mean, at least the Bengals, even if Burrow hasn't signed yet, they know what direction they're going in. And some of the Browns players that we broke down, I broke down on um, Thursday, have signed their rookie deals. The same could be said with the Bills. So some of the Bills rookies and some of the Browns rookies have already signed their rookie contracts. Nobody on Jacksonville has signed a rookie contract yet. That is a red flag for me. Because if those guys that they drafted don't play this year... They're gonna be a, they're gonna be one of the worst teams, and perhaps even the worst team in the league. And I've never predicted a team to go 0-16, but the Jacksonville Jaguars just may be that franchise in 2020. They just might go 0-16. DJ Hayden's in a contract year. Rashawn Melvin's in a contract year. So if the CJ Henderson holds out, then Those guys are starting, and Henderson's going to ease into that number one spot through the nickel. But, man, the fact that the Jaguars have not signed any of their rookies, that is alarming. And I think if they get a quarterback like Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields, the Jaguars can take over this division at some point. Because Watson does not have his security blanket, DeAndre Hopkins. He's going to have to adapt and step up to the plate and show people he's the leader of this team. Without Hopkins. He had Hopkins those first three years. Now he's the man. He's the leader of the team. And there were plays where Deshaun Watson looked like the military general Sun Tzu. Like, he's that. he was that calm. Watson was that calm last year. He looked like Sun Tzu, the military general when he was in the huddle and it was fun to watch him show that. He's going to have to show even more of that. The Colts don't have Andrew Luck anymore but they they got Phillip Rivers and the Titans made the AFC Championship despite being a 6th seed last year. So, And they beat my Patriots and they beat the Ravens, the top seeded team in the AFC. So, for me the Jaguars... The fact that the Jaguars are in this position is not good at all. They have to play the AFC South. I think the Jacksonville Jaguars could honestly go 0-16. If Cam Robinson does not win the left tackle job, this team can go 0-16. I really believe that. And they haven't signed any of their rookies yet. Which is amazing. Amazing. I don't think we've ever seen an NFL season where a team has zero rookies signed with less than 100 days until the start of the regular season. That is simply astounding. And they reopened some beaches and stuff in Jacksonville early with social distancing, so the Jaguars have got to get this taken care of. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to roast the Jaguars anymore. I don't want to piss off their diehard fan base. But the point is, you got... All the rookies you drafted from 2020 have not signed their rookie deals yet. There were a few players in the Browns and Bills that already agreed to their rookie deals. The players in the Patriots have all signed their rookie deals, even Kyle Duggar. So, yeah, the Jaguars have to sign their rookies. They have $20 million in cap space, and they've got to use that money to ink their rookies and sign the contracts. Tomorrow, I will discuss the Detroit Red Wings' on State of the Franchise. I will also discuss NHL prospects with the Prospect Profile Series. I'm going to be breaking down NHL prospects, and I'll go through the entire first round of my two-round MLB mock draft. Once again, it's an updated first round, revised. Some of the picks are the same. Other picks are different. And whatever news happens in the world of sports tomorrow, that will... I will also break that down. This is Chris Ransom of Draft Utopia. You can like us on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, subscribe to our YouTube channel, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm signing off. Enjoy your Monday evening, and I'm going to get more work done for Wednesday's MLB draft. So I'll see everybody tomorrow. So long.